So welcome to this talk sponsored by the Institute of World Politics. For any of you that are new here, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We offer a doctoral program, seven master's degree programs, including two online MAs, and 18 certificates of graduate study. If you are at all interested in learning more about us, please feel welcome to grab a staff member at the end of the lecture. Additionally, to support the work of IWP, please visit us at iwp.edu backslash donate. Uh, so I want to take a quick moment. Uh, if you have any electronic devices on, we ask that you silence them at this time. So I'll give you guys just a minute here. Thank you. Today we'll be hearing from Mr. Robert Roseberry, who will deliver a lecture entitled Lessons from the Russo-Ukraine War and its U.S.-China Conflict Application as part of IWP's Student Speaker Series. Robert Roseberry holds a bachelor's degree, two bachelor's degrees, excuse me, of science in both strategic intelligence and criminal psychology from Liberty University. In addition, he has recently obtained his master's in strategic intelligence studies here at IWP. He has studied, East, he has studied Eastern European history and its political workings since he was a teenager. As a native Ukrainian, he has followed the developments of the war between Ukraine and Russia has, and has formulated a theory that could be useful should China assume a more aggressive posture that could quickly escalate. With that, please welcome Mr. Robert Roseberry. It's been 340 days since the, since the largest land war in Europe broke out. And that same amount of time, news coverage of the atrocities in Ukraine has taken place coupled with also the coverage of the tools sent to Ukraine to try to stop the Russians. This war is unique and should be looked at as such because it is the first real modern war to be fought, it, meaning a war that's taking place during the social media age. Both sides are in reality near peers, at least using similar weapons and different tactics. However, the tactics used in this war should be looked at as tensions with China keep on rising. Recently, a four-star general in the Air Force came out and said that he believes that the United States and China will be at war by 2025. This lecture will be broken down into two major parts, the will to fight and how to fight. These two aspects are paramount for any nation that wishes to win a, win a war. First up is the will to fight. The will to fight can be seen in many of the brave stories of war and is the general force by which a nation continues to fight. This can be affected by many factors. However, for the sake of this lecture, it will be broken down into three. First is the use of PR or propaganda to keep people in the fight. Second are the losses taken in the fight. And third is the grit needed to continue on. Let's begin with PR and propaganda. Social media has become a daily part of everybody's life. I'm sure everybody this morning looked at Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, etc. Of a new study that just came out, half of all adults in the United States get some form of news from social media. This includes TikTok. TikTok, as many people in this room know, is used by the CCP to collect a lot of information. And its algorithm is used to also spread um, news and other such things that are geared towards certain people. As it currently stands, 25 to 33% of all users on TikTok solely use that platform just to get their news. So it makes it a key propaganda outlet for the CCP. The Chinese could, through the app, switch up the algorithm and show news stories that would either be pro-China or discrediting Taiwan's independence or just blatantly saying why the United States shouldn't get involved. And they don't have to convince everybody in the country, just probably about a third, maybe a fourth of people in total. 
The use of social media has been seen, has been used tremendously a lot during the Russo-Ukraine war. Ukraine arguably is the main king of social media in the war. One just needs to look at all the videos that have come out from the Snake Island video to the Ghost of Kiev. And these videos and images that come out aren't just for internal circulation in Ukraine to increase the morale of the people, but it's also for international use. And as such, it not only helps the people there, but it also shows the world what you're actually putting your money into. China could do this in reverse and instead show not only the American people why not to help Taiwan, but they could also use this to show Taiwan just, you know, why don't you become part of us? Social media is, major, is a major platform, and as such, it should be looked at. Social media, as I mentioned, can be used to bolster a nation, and it can also be used to dissolve it. However, it's also used in the Russo-Ukraine war to hide losses. The United States has never fought a modern war against a near peer. Last time we fought a major war, it was in Iraq, and that was in 03. The world's changed a lot in 20 years. The, current, the US, United States lost in the Iraq war 4,431 people. In Afghanistan, over two decades, we lost 2,456. Both of these were the last major conflicts, as I mentioned. However, in the Russo-Ukraine war, current statistics are staggering. As it currently stands, the Russians have lost official KIA, according to the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense, 127,000 people. And their injured range anywhere from 300,000 to 800,000. Ukraine's hid their numbers, obviously, but one could ask, ask, speculate that it's similar. There's two points I want to add when it comes to losses. First, the Russians are using tactics that are straight out of the First World War. They're sending men at any location just trying to take whatever they can. The recent loss of Solodar took, took the Russians six months and arguably 5,000 troops to take. Second, the United States and China possess weapons that nobody's seen. And it's not something that you, hopefully any of us will see. This is far beyond anything such as the howitzers and systems that you see in, in Ukraine. It's much more space age technology. It's likely that China would try to consider a knockout blow through the use of PR and losses. They could show the United States, look, we beat you first. And this is somewhat backed up by a recent war game that came out. One of the key contributors, Irina Mastro, states that within the initial attack, within an initial Chinese attack, the United States will lose 60% of its air assets in Okinawa. That's complete loss right there. And that does not even go into all, any of the naval losses that would also occur most likely should that happen. However, one could say that the casualties would be high on both sides. And this is where grit comes into effect. The grit of a people... The grit is defined as the perseverance of effort and consistency to, of interest for long-term goals. So it's essentially, why are we doing this for the long-term? Now, long-term for us usually seems 10, 20 years, but let's just think in a year. It's been 340 days since the start of the Ukraine war, and it's been a long time since the start, especially for the people there. So as such, grit is one of the key factors to keep someone in a fight. And the worst part is, it's a known unknown. We know people have grit, but we don't know how much grit is actually there. This leads into more domestic things, such as how to fight. Intelligence. Intelligence is the key to many things now, especially on the, especially on the ground. In the cyber age, intelligence has become more abundant than ever. While you do have the initial ints, such as SIGINT, Emmet, Human, etc., that's not necessarily the biggest issue. 
Biggest issue is just open information. I'm sure everybody in this room does online shopping. And I'm sure everybody also has Netflix accounts and just general social media accounts. Well, that's all, all that's open information that can get sold to whoever pays the most for it. China's already ahead of us through the use of TikToks and other apps and in their products and 5G systems, which are going up. It allows them to gather a lot of information. Well, initially that might not sound like it's a big deal because they can't go through all of it. It's not necessarily them trying to sift through all of it. It gives them two key um, advantages. First, it allows them to get a pulse and feel of what the United States is really thinking on social media. And as such, they can tailor whatever propaganda or whatever mission they have for that. Second, it allows them to profile people a lot better. If I have a target that I'm trying to get, well, I know their friend's shopping habits. I know their shopping habits. A lot of people have their entire lives on social media, even people that have tried to stay off it. There also runs the risk of people within the United States using social media to send information to the Chinese. As it currently stands, there is 5.3 million Chinese living in the United States. 42% of them aren't even U.S. citizens. So that's a major risk of people, even if it's 1%. In the Russo-Ukraine war, it was seen that Ukrainians in Ukraine were just taking videos of Russian columns and then uploading that online. And Ukraine was able to collect that information and target those columns. Ukraine also used dating apps to track Russian movements in the Cherkassy region because it was open information. Their cell phone networks were also used. The Russians would pop up their cell phones to call home, you know, figure out what's going on. And that information was called Spring Flowers. And the telecommunications companies in Ukraine would relay that to an artillery unit and they'd wipe out the Russian unit. As such, all this open information can be used against us. However, as I mentioned earlier, the Chinese living here, while it sounds bad, could also be a threat as well. This mostly leads to logistics and infrastructure. In North Carolina, about two months ago, a month ago, there was a major attack on two power substations. It left 100,000 people without power for a week, right? There wasn't a sophisticated cyber attack. It wasn't a hack. It was somebody armed with a gun, any guy, realistically. And that person's never been found. In Washington State, that same, around that same time, two criminals attacked another power station there, and that left 15,000 people without power. So as it stands, everybody's concerned about cyber, and rightfully so, but physical attacks from saboteurs within the United States, that's just equally as worse. And there's not really a whole lot stopping people from getting into those substations. I drive by three of them on my way to the gym, and there's a fence. That's not going to stop a whole lot. Second is logistics. And this is not just wartime logistics, but also just basic logistics. Unhappy populace, not really happy war supply. So logistics can be broken down into two major areas. When it comes to war logistics, we need to start looking at chips. While the Russo-Ukraine war has shown that people are running through modern weapon systems very quick, they haven't really had to rely on the supply chains to get the necessary equipment to make those weapons. That's mostly being done here. The lion's share of our chips come from Taiwan. And if China were to either blockade or just stop those shipments all around, then what are we going to use to make weapons? Second is the supplies needed just for society to work as well, logistically. A th about a third to a quarter of all U.S. goods are shipped via rail. So same sabotage groups that could go in and take out power lines could also disrupt the rail network. And that would cause not only rolling issues with the power system, but also with the need to get food, 
supplies, basic things. I'm sure everybody remembers during COVID when you know you couldn't find anything at the grocery store, or now when eggs are ten dollars a carton. It's not exactly a fun time. However, while we do rely on most of our allies for different means to make our weapons and whatnot, we also rely on our allies through NATO as a defense. However, the war in Ukraine has shown that major powers aren't always going to aren't always going to follow their agreements necessarily. When the war broke out, Armenia and Azerbaijan went to war over Novokarabakh. Uzbekistan was aflame with interethnic conflicts, and even Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan started skirmishes along the border. Now, if that's what happens when Russia's distracted, what happens when we're distracted on China? We can't be everywhere, and there's plenty of points in the world that are more than willing to take advantage of a United States that isn't focused. As such, we're going to have to rely on our allies, but they're not exactly militarily set up like we are, and as such, that could be a major detriment. There also runs the risk that should we get personally attacked by China through either us intervening in Taiwan or something along those lines happening, there's not necessarily a guarantee that NATO is going to help us. NATO was tested in 2001 during a terrorist attack, but it's never been tested against the near peer. As such, that could be a major weakness. However, I don't like leaving things on a bad note. So there's a lot of dilemmas facing the United States. However, there are some solutions. First off, when it comes to the social media realm, a relook on how we view apps and how we view technology really needs to be worked on. Currently, you could ban TikTok, but another app could pop up like that. So having some look into app corporations and app companies, app stores, and seeing where this stuff's made and who's actually behind it, not just for national security, but also for the consumer as well, could actually shed some light on the whole app system. Second, create working groups in Congress, the presidency, the DOD, etc., of younger people to show how social media works. The median age of Congress is 65, and in the Senate, it's 75. I've tried to explain to my grandmother how social media works, and it's like trying to teach physics. It, it just doesn't work out. And as such, these working groups could show not only our weaknesses in social media, but also how we can then exploit it to be used against the Chinese or also suppress other areas as needed. When it comes to grit, it can, while it's a known unknown, it can be increased. In a study that was conducted, researchers found that people that have interest and, um, interest and essentially stakes in a certain topic or product or whatever, they're more likely to stick in it for the long run. So the United States needs to start a whole campaign showing why Taiwan matters, why any of this matters. Because I had more or less a street side survey where I work, where I asked my coworkers what they thought about the whole China, China, US issue. And they're not DC bubble people. They don't really know politics super great. And all of them told me, they said, well, I don't really matter to me. They're like, we can still get chips from China regardless. And for the average person, that's generally how it is. When it comes to how we fight, obviously increasing protection around our infrastructure is necessary. As I mentioned, most power substations are defended by fences. And while sophisticated hacks might be up on the workings, don't don't underestimate a guy with a gun and a couple of thousand rounds, because he can do just as much damage. There's also the rail networks that need to be looked at. What, uh, that was on the last slide, Never mind. I'm gonna flip back real quick. 
On that last corner slide, for those that can see it, that's the power grid of the United States. It's small, I know. Um, it's broken up into major sections. So any major issue can't just be refixed by a different grid in a different section. In regards to logistics, the United States needs to stockpiling not only weapons, but the resources to make those weapons. As I mentioned earlier, most of our chips come from Taiwan. If that's not there, I don't really know how you're going to make a lot of sophisticated modern weapons. The Russians, as it currently stands, even though they've been um, uh, embargoed beyond all belief and have sanctions placed on them, they're still getting chips from microwaves, ovens, and other electronic devices like that. I don't want us to be in that same scenario. Lastly, in regards to our allies, we must tell them that they have to increase their defense spending. Even if it's not to help us in Asia, it'd be to defend them from Russia. So helping, telling them that that's a must is much, is a big ask, I understand, but it's an ask that's necessary. Second, it's just drawing lines in the sand and seeing where they fall on a Taiwan issue. A lot of European countries, such as Germany, have strong economic ties to China. And currently the European economy is not doing super great because of the war in Ukraine. As such, there's not a whole lot of incentive for Europeans to back us should Taiwan have an issue or a situation, I guess I should say. But these are just some solutions. There's no panacea. And I hope this allows other people to go out and start thinking about these ideas. I'd like to thank IWP for, post, for allowing me to have this. And uh, I'd like to thank Professor Hodakevich, even though I don't think he's in the room, uh, for sponsoring this. Uh, are there any questions? Oh, sure, applause. And if you guys have any questions, uh, I'll come around with the mic so it gets caught online. Is there going to it's my understanding that the power grids, that there's been a lot of effort to tie them together. Are we going to decentralize them now? Or, you know, do you know anything about that? Um, I'm not 100% sure on that, to be completely honest. While I understand there's efforts to that, the problem, as far as I understand, is just it's a massive grid to begin with. And when, one thing with the power system as well is not just keeping the grids connected, but if you get power out in certain areas, it could have a cascading effect as far as I understand. Yeah. And that's assuming that we even have the logistics to get the generator units necessary to replace the ones that were destroyed. Because if you think about it, if it goes out, if you have that happen, I don't know, five, six different places in just one location, there might not even be enough to go replace all that. So I'm gonna be honest, I don't know a whole lot about the integration of it. I just know that that was a major weakness is that it is so decentralized and there's no way to back it up should, like, let's say the Southeast gets hit. Well, the Northeast and whatnot can't go and help that. Mm -hmm. And then you could have people without power for weeks. Mm -hmm. I think she was next. Okay. Uh, my question is, is there, is there any room for diplomacy in any of this? Preparing for peace through talks? I think everybody hopes for diplomacy because a near-peer war with China would just be detrimental. But whether or not that's feasibly achievable, that's a different question. China has one goal, that's to retake Taiwan. We have one goal, that's to ensure they don't retake Taiwan. 
that's not really a whole lot of talking right there. So I can't necessarily say one way or the other if there's a definitive chance for peace through talks. One should hope so without ceding over Taiwan. But it's like trying to talk with Russia about Ukraine. You might be able to stop something incrementally, but they'll be back in a decade or so. Okay. Uh, hi, I'm hi. Dr. Surreal. Um First of all, just to fill in a point to your question. Okay, the power, they've been addressing this issue on the power grid for quite a few years, for pushing now 10 ish years. And before that, they were addressing it, but it was not very public. The power grid has already gone down more than the times that you've just seen. They've just usually likened it to a hiccup, a tree falling down. So the issues of the power grids going down, our power grids are poorly structured. We have, it's divided over three regions of the United States, and it's very poorly managed technically because it's all politically motivated. So for instance, all of Texas, which has repeatedly had some major problems because of the political issues, it's verboten to actually deal with it. So no, we're not making any headway. That's that. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Um, and to a couple of things that you were saying, um, I'm the associate rector of a private Ukrainian university. I came to one of your lectures here. How many? I came to one of your lectures here. Oh, you did. Okay. Yes, ma'am. So in any case, um, you were you were t you were talking about the topic of grit. Yes, ma'am. Okay, grit is the will of people to understand what they're doing something for. And the diverse amount of how information is dispersed and handled in the United States when information gets presented, it's mostly on sort of social media, which is like something going around and around and around on a merry-go-round. How would you see a better way of getting a message out so that the American public can appreciate the dynamics of what, be it, be it to be honest with you, any country, not just China and U.S. and, and Taiwan. Most Americans are fairly shallow to put it politely, uh, in terms of understanding about global dynamics. How would you see that better addressed? So when it comes to that, I'd say it depends on the age cohort you're really kind of going for. Younger people, you have to tackle this problem with a totally different way than you would older people. Older people, remember the, my parents remember the Cold War. They lived through most of it. My grandparents lived through most of the Cold War. So. You don't, it's a different message that you're trying to send to each person. For the older generation, you can point it as American might needed to preserve peace and democracy. To the younger generation, they have a much more cynical view of the United States. So explaining not just on a geopolitical view as to why this is important, but explaining to them, well, you like the nice things you currently have, those nice things might be interrupted should this happen. And basically split it off between two different levels. And so I don't necessarily think there is, 
one catch-all way to get everybody in the same boat using the same message because they're different groups of people. My sister's seven years younger than me, and her and I are speaking to two totally opposite languages when it comes to a lot of stuff. And she just, it's just how it works. And so it depends on how you want to do that messaging, right? When it comes to, as I mentioned, when it comes to social media, working groups in Congress and in other parts of the U.S. government that are considerably younger than the lawmakers could help explain, hey, here's how we could start a program with this. We could start outreach programs. We could start internal programs. Something along those lines. That's a good thought, but I must point out, that's not how Congress works, even with the staffing. Now, I know because I've worked on the Hill for seven years, and, it, and I also am dealing with senators' offices right now on a major international project. So you have to understand the way the, the, the structure works. To be proposing what you're saying is not wrong, but it's not, it doesn't just fit in some place. There is, there is, no, there is no hook to hang it on. Well, I guess it's time to make a new hook. Well, that doesn't work that way either. Yeah. <coughs> Hi, my name is Dr. Amanda Wan, and I'm the director of the China Asia program here at IWP. And it's really good to see one of our um, IWP students um, presenting on uh, such an important uh, topic. So my question is, what do you think of the relation between Russia and China? And how do you think that'll influence um, China's political agenda to possibly attack Taiwan? When it comes to Russia's China, Russia and China's relation, I wouldn't say it's necessarily something that they're doing out of nicety toward each other. I think it's pure pragmatism. Because as soon as whatever issue, however Ukraine turns out, one's gonna stab the other in the back. China can, if Russia should Russia lose and break up, China could then essentially put in, put resources into Siberia and take over whatever small regions pop up out of there. In regards to Russia, even if Russia takes Ukraine, they're still now one of the weakest superpowers if one could call them a superpower at that point. And realistically, they are pretty much put on their knees towards China, which not only defends China's northern border, which it shares the vast majority of with, with Russia, but it also then could make allow China to implement certain economic policies or trade policies that solely benefit China. In regards to how I think that would pan out with Taiwan, it's hard to say exactly because as it currently stands, the Russo-Ukraine war is taking up all of Russia's attention. And so I think most likely Russia would just have to say, sure, yeah, we're going to help you out. I don't know. I don't know what they have left. Trees, like animals. I don't really know what Russia has left at this point um, to just try to support Taiwan or China. Sorry. Um, so... I would say it's much more of a pragmatic alliance, I guess, rather than one of, like us with the English or with NATO in general, where it's a solid alliance. But I, I definitely along those lines. Hi, uh, I'm Paul Kirvin. Um, I agree with you that the American public really needs to know why Taiwan is important to the United States. But uh, there is an issue of the government telling that sort of thing to the people. It's the Smith-Munt Act that precludes us from propagandizing the American population. So it's just a comment more than anything. This is something that would have to be overcome uh, or revised uh, if we 
were to do some sort of outreach to inform the people. Okay. Thanks. So I just push the blue button. Uh, just speak. Yeah. Okay. Hi, uh, my name is Tony Senate. I work over at the Pentagon on international affairs there. And uh, what I'm uh, intrigued in this talk about is I didn't hear you talk about the resilience of the Taiwanese people or the energy infrastructure of Taiwan or the vulnerabilities of Taiwan or their ability to resist. Because the, the model that we're looking at with regard to Ukraine is Ukraine is doing the fighting and uh, we are not directly at war. NATO is not at war with Russia, at least not in any legal sense or direct sense. It has been argued that it's a proxy war. I'll let you go with that. But, but the same model, <clears throat> I think, would apply in, in the sense of Taiwan even though we have stronger mutual defense cooperation agreements with Taiwan than we did prior to the invasion of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So it's a different model yes, sir. in a certain sense because of the agreements and the alliances mm -hmm. and the industrial uh, reliance. Ukraine's uh, main exports are in the agricultural sector and they are not uh, provided at the U.S. market or the Western European market mm -hmm. for that matter. So, so you've made a great point about Taiwan and our reliance upon chips coming out of there, but they don't get the raw materials from Taiwan. All right, so they're manufactured there, got that. Um, how, tell me more about how the stuff that's happening in Ukraine, infrastructure resistance of the people, all of that translates over to Taiwan per se, as opposed to the United States, which I would not anticipate the United States would be at war. So, I wouldn't want to compare Taiwan to Ukraine at all, and I'm going to be forthright and say I honestly am not 100% knowledgeable on Taiwanese society. Um, I did do some uh, a study abroad in Korea, so I know somewhat of, uh, I guess, the Asian kind of social psychology in that regard. But in regards to the grit and whatnot, we're also in Taiwan, I guess the way it's uh, the best look at it is it's not Ukraine. They're two totally different people. And the, I guess the main way I would say it is we're assuming that China's going to conduct a land war, right? They're going to naval invade Taiwan, right? I'm not at liberty to Okay, well, so, well, I'm going to make the assumption I'm, that that's what I'm, everybody else I'm assumes. I'm going to you I, I recently started looking at it from a different angle because, like I mentioned, I've been talking to some of my fellow employees that I work with, right, people who live outside the bubble. And I asked them, I said, so what do you guys feel if China invaded Taiwan? And they said, yeah, we should help Taiwan, totally. Like, you know, gung-ho, America, right? Anyways, they, uh, I asked them, again, well, what happens if China, China just blockades Taiwan? They allow food and medical resources in, so there's not a humanitarian crisis, but they just stop all trade, right? So... And a lot of them told me, they're like, no, we don't really care at that point. They're like, nobody's getting harmed. So that's kind of the method I'm working off of, is not necessarily focusing on Taiwan, because the recent war game that just came out said that all of all the United States efforts are completely moot if Taiwan capitulates. As far as I understand, they 
have a relatively strong defense. They're an island, which you know adds on to the whole geographic defense part right there. But I'm gonna play my cards out. I'm not 100% knowledgeable enough on their own internal politics and their societal politics to know where exactly their grit and resolve would lie. Mostly because, like I mentioned in this, grit's a known unknown. You don't really know it until it's tested type thing. So, I, I, so your, the points that you've made in your paper outline for us is that, that Mostly you're about the resilience of the United States people as uh, effectively as a donor nation to, to support uh, Taiwan. Is that kind of the angle you're going The for? angle I was shooting for was that not so much a donor nation, but along the lines of if we don't have the grit here to help the Taiwanese, then our aid there is not going to happen. I mean, currently there's already fightings up on the hill about how much money to send Ukraine. Now, if the Ukraine war continues on and then China decides to do something, in my personal opinion, I think something's going to happen between 2025 and 2027. But if something like that happens, well, America doesn't really like long wars and it doesn't like taxpayers don't like sending their money off to wars that they don't have vested interest in. And so that's why I said the whole idea of keeping American grid up is keeping people in the fight to allow us to help Taiwan. That's assuming that the Taiwanese hold and there's not some underhanded trickery by the, by the Chinese, there's not a blockade, anything along those lines. This is assuming that there is a naval invasion. So as such, that's kind of what the angle I was going for. But I like your idea of like a donor version of grit. I, I kind of like that. I'll look forward to your sequel. <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, what do you think about Vietnam as a nation in the region, one that's previously been attacked by China, and what role they might play if China decides to start being much more aggressive and taking real-world action against its regional neighbors? Would Vietnam play any role, in your view, I would say the countries in Asia specifically, they're not, I'm not going to say they're unreliable partners, but they're much more along lines of we're going to put our chips to who we think is doing best necessarily as opposed to we're definitely going to be on your side because you know, you're America or we're definitely going to be on you know, the other side because you know, you're China. Just look at India right now, right? So India has been getting cheap gas from Russia, but is still a nominal ally of the United States, right? So they're playing that middle ground because they know they can play with the superpowers. In Vietnam specifically, uh, I mean, to be completely honest, I'm not sure which way they would slide. I mean, China does kind of have them hemmed in a little bit, at least navally, uh, through massive presence in the South China Sea. So. I'm not 100% sure. Vietnam would probably just bet on whoever they think the winning horse might be in that regard. The, the question, however, is with China's own history of invading Vietnam in the not too distant past, uh, would Vietnam feel that they would be under imminent threat if China begins to actively invading or using military force on its neighbors? Would that sway their considerations? I mean, possibly, but it depends on how, you, how China views its neighbors. Because China doesn't view Taiwan as an independent country. They view it as a breakaway province, right? So while we see it as an independent country, and that being China's neighbor, 
they don't see it that way. So Vietnam might just be like, oh, cool, they might just take Taiwan and we might be okay and we might not be. That's why I said they might play both sides to figure out how much they can get out of either the United States or China. They could probably be afraid of China most likely. But whether or not they're definitely going to side one side or the other or not have any fears, they'd be foolish not to have any fears. And uh, one last question concerning, um, we, we can't propagandize and, and try to uh, build up war support perhaps, uh, or grit I should say, um, in the United States through like the kinds of methods that other countries like Russia have with uh, blatant propaganda. But one thing I find curious was Ukraine's use of drills, uh, helping the populace be aware of where the nearest bomb shelter was, running drills on what would happen if bombs started to fall. In the United States, we do have drills and the like for things like if North Korea launches a missile. Uh, there is that famous incident in Hawaii where they sent out a real non-practice message to everybody and everybody freaked out. Would drills, perhaps in the case of a... Um, Chinese intervention in Taiwan help to build grit or generate support for a armed intervention? I think quite you good. Josh, you, you good? Okay. Um, I would say that that might have the opposite effect. That might scare people half to death. I mean, the idea of a missile raining down here in the United States, that's insane. Like, <laughs> that's one of those things where it's like nobody hopes that happens. But it's not so much building grit in the sense that we need military grit initially, though that would be necessary should a full conflict break out. It'd be grit in the sense that we have to see the long-term goal of helping Taiwan. Like, what, what would be the long-term, if I have to go explain to somebody why we need to help Taiwan, right? And they say, sure, you know what, for a month or two, it's fine, right? Six months down the road, a year down the road, two years down the road, whatever happens, how do I then keep that up and say, yeah, we totally just need to keep this up and keep it going? It's not even been a full year since the Russo-Ukraine war started. And there's already people talking about how this just needs to be a negotiated piece. So it's not just the sense of grit in the bombs raining down idea, but it's the grit of the public being behind the government to support a foreign, foreign uh, I guess, relations, intervention, whatever. And there's somebody back there. One of the central le uh, lessons we learned from uh, Ukraine is that if all the stuff we've been passing to them over the last year had been there exactly one year ago, there would be tens of thousands of Ukrainians alive today who are not alive. Uh, our strategy has been to put things in, in drabs and dribbles. There will be no convoys coming from Poland to Taiwan. Every single thing you want to give Taiwan to help defend itself has to be there tomorrow morning. That realization seems to have escaped damn near everyone in this city, and I'm wondering what we can do to uh, upgrade that realization and move equipment accordingly. So in that regard, I agree. The logistics train to get stuff to Taiwan, considerably more complex than driving a truck across a border. But I think a recent war game came out that said that exact same thing you're saying, that we can't just go a little bit inch by inch should something break out with China and Taiwan. We have to go whole hog, 
necessarily at the first drop of a hat. And so I think I'm not, the point of this was not necessarily to get into military topics like that, but I would say definitely, um, you know, sending the, what we have now there to help them defend is very much key. And having things ready to go at a moment's notice in that regard should definitely be on the table as well. However, this is all presupposing that Taiwan holds as well, which that's the big question. That's the kind of thing everybody knows. The initial United States assessments for Ukraine was that the country was going to be overrun in three days. That clearly didn't pan out. So whether or not the Taiwanese would fall in 72 hours or, you know, 340 days, that's, that's not something that I'm 100% knowledgeable on. That's up to them and what they're willing to do. Hey, good evening. Just uh, one qu- I have really tons of questions for you, but I'll limit I'm myself sure. to one. I really was intrigued by your conversation about grit and using social media, the social, how social media plays into what people perceive and what they consume. And in that line of questioning or reasoning, um, you mentioned the different age groups in the United States and how difficult that is. Mm-hmm. As you look at whether it's Russia or China, in your research, do you see an opportunity to really use our, our adversaries' best worst features right, for our own, um, our, our own grit, uh, I guess, endearment purposes where we're highlighting maybe for the younger generation, look at all these human rights abuses, right? Look at these environmental abuses. Have you seen the smog in Beijing? Right, things like that. I'm assuming younger people care about those things, maybe more so than someone my age in, the, in their mid-40s. Or for someone like me in uniform, obviously I care about the national security dynamics, the regional security dynamics. Is there opportunity for a, a layered approach to an information campaign for the, for the United States public that highlights those things that all the different interest groups that are represented uh, by our elected officials or by other groups domestically can appeal to? Have you seen anything to suggest that? So I'd say that there's definitely room for that. I mean, there is a lot of room for that. But the problem isn't necessarily the fact that we can't get the message out there. The problem is the fact that, so I have younger cousins, right? My sister's 18 and I got a younger cousin that's 16, right? They spend the solid majority of their time on TikTok watching videos. Now, I'm pretty sure we can't control what's on TikTok. I know we've tried to use TikTok to promote, you know, certain things in different, administ- you know, in the current administration. Just recently, I think I saw one of the senators out on TikTok trying to promote his campaign. That's great. Problem is we don't run the algorithm. So if the algorithm says, oh, well, we noticed an increase of, uh, for lack of a better term, white propaganda necessarily to say, hey, here's why this is important. Hey, you know, look at all these human rights abuses. Well, you know, uh, if the algorithm doesn't pick it up or intentionally chucks it away, it's never going to see the light of day to begin with. And so while you do have different social media platforms as well, um, one thing that we have to keep in mind is a lot of the social media companies and whatnot, even your own cell phone companies, they're in debt to the dollar, not necessarily to whatever nation they work in. Just recently in China during the COVID protests, Apple stopped the airdrop. Now, that seems insane for them to do that, but are they then beholden to us or are they beholden to China? And again, that leads major questions to those major corporations. So I get what you mean. We need ways to try to propagate that. The best ways to do that, I honestly don't know. And some of that's just because I'm not on 
a whole lot of social media to begin with. But I would say definitely campaigns, if not by the government, definitely getting involved, you know, different culture groups, different resource groups, just getting involved and getting on social media and just explaining, A, what the difference between Taiwan and China is. I asked most of the people I work with, they're like, so Taiwan's an island and China's a country. I was like, close, but not close. So just getting that basic level of education is part of that whole grit thing. You have to get people knowledgeable on what they're trying to help. And that's one thing I think Ukraine's done really well across social media. They've been able to propagate the Ukrainian state, their national identity, et cetera, to international audiences and to the large diaspora that they have abroad. However, China's got a much easier time because they not only watch their people that are here, but if, like I said, if they have control over the algorithms, any you know, major platform, any major campaign you would have just wouldn't see the light of day to begin with. Oh, Dr. Soreo, we actually have a couple questions back here too. Oh. Apologies. Uh, good evening, Mr. Rosenberry. Uh, excellent talk, by the way. I really liked how you highlighted uh, that the single point of failure in our logistics lines is Taiwan. I guess that's that my question is gonna be is, what are the warning signs we're gonna see that an imminent invasion is gonna hit Taiwan? So I'd definitely say some major warning signs. It depend, well, it depends on what China plans to do. I'm gonna be completely honest. If they plan a naval invasion, I should, I'm not a military expert, but I should hope that we should be able to, uh, you know, identify the formation of a naval invasion. If they're gonna blockade it though, that's something that's completely different. Uh, yeah, you'll see a whole lot of ships. Just recently, the CNS Liaoying was um, commencing um, training. Their carrier fleet was commencing training drills in, I think, the South China Sea. So, you know, it, it, it's not, are there going to be telltale signs? Yes. Is there going to be a defense, you know, a firm, are they totally going to do it this time? Not 100% sure. I mean, look at Russia. They put their troops back and forth across near the Ukrainian border constantly. And it wasn't until, what, a week, two weeks before that everybody was like, hey, by the way, they're totally going to invade. So would you see the initial signs? Yes. But are you necessarily going to see the long-term goals? Maybe. I would say one way you could probably see it is checking out just to see how Taiwan, I guess, on social media like TikTok and stuff, if you search that, what comes up? Does it be, is it seen as a province of China? Because that would actually matter. That could show a Chinese intention to be like, hey, look, it was part of our island, you know, it's part of our nation anyways, it's just a breakaway state, we're just trying to get it back in the fold. So that could be some social media ideas that you could see popping up, especially more so, or just pure distraction of the American public to be unaware of what's going on. I definitely see that as well. Before we continue, was there anybody that hadn't asked a question yet that wanted to ask a question? Yes, she did. Hi. Yeah, um, I just, uh, thanks for your talk. I actually grew up in Taiwan, so this right. uh, is really near and dear to my heart. But um, I just wanted to um, expand a bit on the soft power perspective that we're kind of alluding to um, mm -hmm. in the context of a hard power conflict, mm -hmm. um, just that, and this isn't a one-to-one -one comparison, but for a long time, Taiwan found its place in the hearts of mainlanders through its cultural power. Um, it was kind of the locus of pop culture uh, for, for decades, um, and that's much more diverse now. 
But um, I do think it would be worth, it's a little bit of a cynical, but maybe realistic view um, to take that, you know, getting some celebrity voices behind this um, conflict, that could be something that could sway younger generations in the US, um, kind of a make Taiwan sexy again <laughs> campaign. You know, if we got Beyonce over there or BTS over there, um, I, I think that it could just be one route to um, get people's hearts and minds behind Taiwan. Oh no, I totally yeah. agree. But the problem is you run into that, look at the NBA. Anybody that's ever talked out about China, they've just miraculously stopped playing basketball and they have get blacklisted. So I think that'd be awesome to get something like that going where you do have that kind of celebrity support. But the problem is you first have to get the Chinese fangs out of a lot of our cultural institutions here and so much money they make. I mean, look at the recent Top Gun film. It almost had an entire thing, the entire movie censored, at least in China, because of the fact it had the Taiwan flag. But it still came out and it showed that corporations in the United States, while they may be trying to follow the, you know, the won or the dollar, uh, you know, it probably is more better, more better, better uh, for them to follow the dollar more than anything else because the people here are, I think, wanting something like that. But like I said, it all starts from that fundamental knowledge of what is even the difference between those two and then building and working on that. If you had a celebrity go over to Taiwan, that might be great. But then what happens if they turn around and be like, see, it's just a breakaway province. And we've already seen how much of a pain, well, pain, how much of a nightmare it is just for, uh, what was it, Speaker Pelosi went to Taiwan, what was it, Cup last year? And that was an international incident in and of itself. So I think we do slightly hamstring ourselves by, the, um, by our policy with Taiwan, by not guess officially recognizing it, like somewhere in that middle ground between recognizing it and not recognizing it. And so I think maybe looking at that policy, changing that a little bit, and then actually being able to progress that further and be like, this is why these people need to be upheld. Like they're a model standard for what could be a much bigger model in China and you know, with less human rights abuses as well. So yeah, I, th I think that'd be a great idea. I mean, yeah. I, you ask him, he's the question guy. Thank you for your time this evening. I'm sorry I missed the first half. Oh, you're good. Um, from a strategy perspective, I'm curious to know, what do you think the long-term implications are as far as cyber, cyber is concerned, being able to hack hypersonics or even hack military weapon-grade systems like the Bulldog that was just sent over to Ukraine? Um, particularly with Taiwan, do they have the expertise that powers like Russia and China would have to be able to combat that from a, from a long-term perspective and how much assistance from a total cost of war perspective, how much assistance would be needed from allies, et cetera? Is this the cyber domain? And the cyber okay. domain, yeah. Um, I, would, I would discredit Russia as being a cyber superpower, um, to be completely frank though I would give the Ukrainians a lot of credit for being fairly fortified against Russian attacks. I think we could definitely help Taiwan in the cyber realm. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an up and coming field, but I would definitely say too that we can help them. However, we also don't wanna leave vulnerabilities open here. When it comes to hacking things, uh, like I mentioned, you don't necessarily need to hack stuff just to have this chaos and discord here. 
And so, yeah, cyber prevention is great. I, you know, I think that's the, definitely the new hot thing and we need to help time along with that. But also don't underestimate the personal factor of just sneaking people in. Like in, um, in Ukraine, currently Ukraine's got sabotage groups all over occupied territories that are just wreaking havoc amongst the Russians. There's no complex hack, no takedown of systems, no DDoS attacks, just simple people with weapons. Because I think because we are in an age where cyber is the hot new thing, everybody's gonna be looking there first. And so you wanna, you want to, while you wanna increase the cyber defenses, and I definitely think the United States could do that, especially helping Taiwan, looking along the lines of also the, just the sheer physical side of an attack is equally as valuable, necessarily. Um, you gotta ask the question, man. I'm just a speaker, he's the question, man. <laughs> That's a great point, and I guess to add to it, what do you think in terms of domain expertise for cyber in the United States? I mean, there's many experts suggesting that there's a talent gap with the amount of people who actually have the knowledge and skills needed to go against a country like Russia in terms of cyber. Um, how do we get our skills, or people here, how do we get the skills needed, and what programs can be created to get people who are interested in learning about it and perhaps getting them to the, the level that we need to do from a long-term perspective? I'd say when it comes to the cyber skill gap, that I'm not super knowledgeable on, but one way to get people up and going for it, surprisingly enough, is movies. I'm gonna be completely honest. I have, a, we have a good family friend. They have a younger daughter who's nine. She saw Top Gun Maverick and is like, I'm gonna be a pilot. And I was like, okay, cool, you know what? Power to you. So I definitely think just, portraying it in media and showing, yeah, it's cool, this is what you can do. You know what I mean? Something along those lines would definitely get, especially a lot of younger people coming up through school. But you also have to get people that are gung-ho about the nation and don't have too cynical of a mindset. So that way they're there to support the nation. Like I know specifically the military generally sees an increase of enlistments after major military movies come out. So I would definitely say the media realm, if not through movies, social media, being like, cool, here's how it works. Recently, I saw um, a, a report of the Russians making a mobile game, right, for kids in Ukraine to find military equipment. So why not make a mobile game? Like, you can get the younger audiences that way. An actual made one, not, you know, some half done, oh yeah, it's totally their game. But I think there's a lot of ways that just, again, because the not outreach, but some of the infrastructure for outreach in the government is aged, experienced in life, as I like to say. Um, I, I would say that definitely getting some younger blood in and being like, this is what kids are into now. This is what they like to do, could definitely help that. And you could also promote programs that say, hey, look, cyber, cool field. Why don't you check it out? You know, free, like a test class on coding, or this is what can actually be done with this. Because you have to get the younger audience, obviously younger, but you have to keep them on as to why they should be interested in this. And I definitely say that with the current layoffs in Silicon Valley, that that, would be, that could technically be a goldmine of people that if you can get them over to say, sure, here's a slight pay cut and you're gonna be working for the government, you know, beyond those two hurdles, I feel as though most of them would be more than willing to help. This will be our final question for the Q&A portion, but I'm sure Rob will be very happy to answer any questions afterwards as well. 
First of all, thank you. This has been very informative. Uh, I would like to underscore some couple of points that you made, which I think were particularly important. You were, you were mentioning you didn't quite know, you thought we were doing some things, and we are doing some things to support Taiwan and the region uh, with the Japanese, with reestablishing our port in, believe it or not, Guam, because we're putting back our presence and, again, reinforcing things with Australia, uh, even all the way down the coast, the Sea of Japan, everything mm -hmm. around there. And, uh, you know, Korea, uh, South Korea and such. Um, with regard to the what we need to be continually doing is... Yes, China is actually quite vulnerable, and I think the point in, in some areas. Uh, we just saw that in uh, with the um, in Qatar, where the Chinese had to constantly try to cut away from the fact that nobody was wearing masks, and then they had very people very upset in China, and everything changing in China suddenly about COVID, lockdowns, everything else. So things can change and you have to sort of look at how you can leverage those soft points between the ribs. Mm -hmm. And I think that your point about grit is how you choose things. I don't know if Beyonce is really it, but how about, uh, how about Asian bands, Asian groups? doing, producing things that actually can get seen in China that reinforce the I, independence and identity of the Taiwanese. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Can we give another round of applause for Robert Roseberry? So thank you again, Mr. Roseberry, and everybody that joined us tonight. We have a packed house, which is always good to see. Uh, like I said at the beginning of the talk, if you were at all interested in attending uh, any of our other upcoming events, uh, making a gift to IWP, or just have any questions about our graduate school, feel free to grab myself or any other staff member uh, as you exit, or visit us at iwp.edu. Thank you, everybody, and we have...